Richmond Am a Hard Road to Travel, performed by Bob Carlin from the CD Minstrel Banjo Style. Bob Carlin has a new book out called Banjo, an Illustrated History, and Bob is on the line. Hello, Bob Carlin. Oh, hello once again. Your book is just really outstanding. It's an illustrated history of the banjo, and you go, seems like the beginning of time, to, to current trends in banjo history. When did you start with this obsession with the banjo? I was five years old, I believe it was, and my parents took me to see Pete Seeger in New York play, and that was the beginning of it. We'll get to Pete Seeger in a moment, but I started playing the Richmond and a Hard Road to Travel, a song that you performed on the minstrel banjo style. What do you mean by minstrel banjo style? It's the style of banjo playing that uh, whites adopted and adapted from African-American musicians that was the heart of a popular style, probably the first truly American popular musical style called blackface minstrelsy in the 1830s, 40s, 50s. To say blackface or to say minstrelsy, they're um, loaded terms. And a lot of people have a, a very strong reaction and response to when you want to discuss any part of our history in which African Americans were mistreated or were usurped by whites. So the term minstrel band was was a kind of a term we came up with just to just to try to diffuse some of that reaction that we're afraid we'd get. When we say blackface, we're talking about white people painting their face black, performing black music, essentially? Well, what they represented as plantation life and black music. Now, not all of it was really, truly derived from African-American music. Only the very first progenitors of the style, and most notably Joe Walker Sweeney from Virginia, uh, truly learned from black performers, but many of them really brought as much European into it as African-American. And there's been a lot of discussion about how much are we hearing what African-American music sounded like in that period in the minstrel players and how much are we hearing European influence. And I don't think that will truly ever get settled. Just to clear it in my head, when musicians performed in blackface, that was because the, the black musicians themselves weren't allowed to perform? In the pre-war period, in the post-Civil War period, many of the minstrel musicians were black, and the irony is is that they often had to wear the makeup, well, they did wear the makeup to get on the stage, which is strange. So black on black. Black on black, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, our history is, is not uh, uncomplicated, <laughs> and there's many little twists and turns, and, and lots of things that we should be proud of, but a lot of things not to be proud of. And so it's always complicated when you're talking about history. And But I feel I feel at least you, you should take a crack at it. You shouldn't just ignore it. You do take a crack at it in your book, An Illustrated History. And sure. is the banjo really from Africa? The prototypes are. The ideas is that developed into the instrument uh, in the Caribbean and here in, in on the mainland U.S. Uh, certainly come from West African and African instruments. Yeah, sure. And how did it get here? If, if it was brought over here on slave ships, 
How did it get here? Again, it's unclear whether there were actual instruments made the passage or if these were ideas that were uh, carried over by uh, displaced Africans. But uh, the whole notion of a short string played with a thumb is, is a West African notion. The whole idea of striking down on the strings with the fingers and nails of the right hand, of the picking hand, instead of picking up, is an African notion. And the, the skin covering, instead of a wooden soundboard, is, is an African notion. I mean, I mean, all these things. Playing style, rhythm, the syncopations come from Africa. And I always say in my performances that the banjo is a place where these African and European cultures met because you've got the European melodies in the left hand, which tend not to be syncopated and tend to be on the one and the three. You know your music, your basic music. <laughs> and uh, the African rhythms in the right, which uh, lead the, the thumb often rather than with the index finger and tend to be on the two and the four and put the emphasis on the weak beat. <laughs> you're, getting, you're getting too technical for me, Bob. Well, I'm sorry. Do you consider yourself more of a musician or a historian? That's a hard question to answer. In my heart, I want to play music. And it all started because I wanted to play music and I wanted to understand the music that I was drawn to. And so the historian part, of course, I'm mad and historians would be furious if you called me a historian, just as the folklorist would be mad if you called me a folklorist. The ethnologist would be mad if you called me an ethnomusicologist because I, I haven't been officially uh, anointed. <laughs> but became interested in investigating the history because I thought it would make my music better. And so I suppose I was a musician first. And I always think like a musician when I approach all of this. Your book, Banjo and Illustrated History, is, is really quite an accomplishment. How long have you been working on this book? Many people ask me, and my slightly tongue-in-cheek answer is all my life. <laughs> But really, it's a culmination of everything I've written about the instrument, my books and my articles, album notes, all the research I've done. And, and of course, it incorporates a lot of what other people have found out about the instrument. I'm not a specialist in the African side. I'm not a specialist in the minstrel side. I'm not a specialist in bluegrass. And so I have to rely on other scholars who have really done the, the deep research. Well, you cover the entire history of the banjo, not just what you just mentioned, but it's also the jazz and Dixieland influence of sure. banjo. How much did the influence of broadcasting radio and then of recorded music make on the banjo? Well, it had, it had some impact because the banjo was one of the few instruments that recorded well. And so a lot of, uh, there's a lot of early recordings late 19th century recordings of the banjo. And obviously, the recordings helped to preserve what the music sounded like for our ears, but it also helped to disseminate what these uh, musicians sounded like and spread style. But that's the same with many other types of music. Uh, the biggest impact on, on the banjo after the war was industrialization. And the fact that you could make lots of musical instrument in one swell foop meant that you had all these instruments and then you had to find a market <laughs> for them. 
And luckily, that coincided with the rise of the American middle class. And so those two went hand in hand, but it also, the, the powers that be, the, the large banjo manufacturing companies, wanted to uh, sanitize the image of the instrument for these middle class people. And so at that point, they chose uh, Joe Sweeney as the originator because he was white. They disavowed any contact or connection to the earlier African and African American music and styles and tried to uh, make the banjo respectable. So that was uh, the, uh, probably the most important thing that happened between the Civil War and the turn into the 20th century. And then recordings had had somewhat of an impact because the recordings of these uh, late 19th century, early 20th century city banjo players then helped shape uh, southern banjo playing and rural banjo playing and rural music making and the string bands with banjos. So that if you listen to 78 recordings of supposed country music, old-time music, hillbilly music from the 20s and early 30s, most of the banjo players play in a three-finger or two-finger up-picking style that came of these turn-of-the-century city banjo players, not in the older African-derived uh, frail and claw-hammered down style. The banjo took a number of directions. I mentioned they went uh, became a jazz instrument. Uh, right. Uh, it also became uh, a, a folk instrument, and would would Pete Seeger be an influence in that direction? Well, certainly, Seeger is the most important banjoist and influential banjoist of the post-war period in the folk revival, or whatever you want to call it. I, I believe that the Seeger and Scruggs are the in the post-war period, are the two most important banjo players. They're the two that caused everything else to happen. On one hand, you've got Seeger. Oh, he was blacklisted touring the country and influencing through his instruction manual, Dave Guard of the Kingston Trio to take up the banjo. Seeger through Guard was the most. It was the it helped in the spread of the banjo into the folk revival and made it an emblem that on the other hand Scruggs is the the guy who got all the country musicians to switch over and to try to play like Earl so is it safe to say that Scruggs and Seeger developed their own style of banjo yeah small steps often make big differences and so it's not like they were doing anything that didn't reflect what had happened before nor are they taking it in a radical new uh, direction I think Somebody like Bela Fleck, Tony Trishka, people like that really took it in a much more radical direction than Scruggs or Seeger did. And let's talk a moment about Earl Scruggs. He was the banjo player, not an original banjo player with Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys, but how did he change that sound? How did he influence bluegrass? He took the rural two- and three-finger styles and the turn of the century, what they call classic banjo style that was found in the cities, and smoothed it out. He made it into a, a continuous roll where the melody switched around uh, from kind of between the thumb and the first two fingers. And uh, he worked the melody into this continuous roll. And uh, that su- suited Bill Monroe's music really well. And in fact, he hadn't uh, Earl hadn't fully 
develop that style when he first joined Monroe uh, right after World War II. And uh, it took a year or so of playing with Bill to really come up with uh, a fully developed, a fully mature style. I know Earl Scruggs and uh, Lester Flatt left the Bluegrass Boys and created their own band. Mm-hmm. C- can you touch on that feud that went on between Bill Monroe and Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs? Well, it took Monroe a long time from that first important group that defined his music, as he would say, not to view anybody else who he influenced as competitors. He was a fiercely competitive individual, Monroe was, and so it took until Ralph Rinsler befriended him in the uh, early 1960s to turn Bill's head around and for Bill to realize or to accept the fact that it was a good thing that he was influencing all these people, not a bad thing. And it was indeed Rinsler who adopted someone else's uh, dubbing Monroe the father of bluegrass music, and then applied in a much bigger way. It, it took Rinsler to suggest that to Monroe, and then Monroe took on that mantle. And therefore, it put him on a very different level than everybody else. Yeah, these people were influenced by him, and yeah, he might have trained some of them, and yeah, some of them might have trained them, but they weren't indeed competitors because he was, he was sitting on a higher plane You brought up Ralph Rinsler. Was he part of the folk music revival in the 60s? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Bill Monroe was a lot older than Ralph Rinsler. Oh, yes, of course. Okay. Not a lot, but but certainly from a very different culture, very different place, very different personality. So It's safe to say that Ralph Rinsler opened up a whole new audience to Bill Monroe. Rinsler did several things in the short period that he worked with Monroe. And he did this for Doc Watts, and he did this for a number of artists, but specifically with Monroe, at a time when Monroe was really in bad financial uh, shape, he opened up the whole folk music circuit and folk festival circuit and the college circuit to Monroe. And he also, to, to help in that transition, he helped place the first northern musicians in uh, Monroe's band, most most uh, notably the banjoist Bill Keith. Was this when who to my what, mind yeah. is the next most important banjo player after he's the next one after Earl Scruggs in the in the line of importance as far as banjo styles and banjo playing. And Bill Keith was just uh, a Bill Keith was just a college kid playing banjo? Well he he had graduated already by that point. Bill Keith and Jim Rooney were performing around Boston. Bill was doing his military service in the reserves, and came Red Allen and Frank Wakefield needed a banjo player, and so moved to Washington, D.C. to play with them. And while he was there, actually not Rinsler, but Manny Greenhill, who was a folk agent in Boston, who was booking a flat Scruggs, little mini string of, of events, brought Keith backstage to meet Scruggs, at the Baltimore concert, and they struck up a friendship because Keith had tabbed out all of <laughs> Scruggs's playing, and that led to Keith coming to Nashville and then being at the Opry and Monroe hearing him, and that led to him being hired. What was Bill Keith's innovation? 
Well, instead of playing melody up and down the strings from low to a high note on one string or playing in one position, he came up with the idea of playing across the strings and often starting on a higher note on a lower string or a lower note on a higher string and to play these continuous exchanges of eighth notes to melodies or song melodies. So it's a whole different approach. It was pretty yeah. revolutionary at the time. I see a picture of Bill Keith in your book playing with the Jim Queskin Jug Band as well. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I'm on the phone with Bob Carlin. He has a brand new book out called Banjo, an Illustrated History. And, and these... Photos are really fantastic. You must have traveled the world to get these photos. We were very fortunate that a number of instrument makers provided images, photographs of their instruments. We were fortunate that um, the premier collector of Victorian turn of the century, which are the fanciest, probably the, the fanciest instruments until the jazz age tenors and plectrum came along, allowed us to have a photographer come in and photograph his collection. And just, I knew where to look. I, and I had a collection already myself. I'd amassed a collection of images. We were fortunate that this all fit together in, in one picture. I, I, I'm sure we left things out, and there's always reasons for that. We just did the best we could within the time limits and it, our budget and... It's, everything. It seems like you've come along at the uh, the golden age of the banjo. Have you met Earl Scruggs and, and Bill Monroe and all these folks we're talking about? Well, of course, they're both dead now. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, But you've been playing a while. Met, it's been a while. I, I had met Earl just casually on occasion through John Hartford, who I worked for in the, in the 90s. And... Um, Monroe, I'm not sure if we ever formally met. Uh, I tried to meet as many of these people as I could, obviously, when I was coming up learning this music, but you can only meet so many people. You have only so much access. You mentioned in your book that the the high points of banjo in recent history is uh, Earl Scruggs' dueling banjos and the Beverly Hillbillies. Is there another renaissance coming along, do you think? I think that only time will tell about that. Certainly, dueling banjos being included in the movie Deliverance, the Beverly Hillbillies using Scruggs to play their theme song, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which purposely went out of their way not to have banjo on the soundtrack. No. <laughs> or in the movie, actually was uh, very influential in pushing the instrument. I think we probably need another event like that to really push the banjo back into ascension. I think right now, though, it's become really part of the public consciousness in a way that it never was before. And certainly, I don't think, for instance, I would have gotten called to play on the soundtrack of the remake of Roots. Oh, congratulations. Uh, I didn't know that. Series. Oh, thanks. Uh, if, and if they didn't know that it was important to have authentic-sounding music. Steve Martin certainly has done a lot to popularize the instrument, both in his own concerts and uh, through the musical that uh, he and Edie Brickell wrote. And Bela Fleck, of course, is, is a, a great flag waver for, for the instrument. But I, I think 
one thing I tried to show was that it's not just necessarily the traditional sound of the instrument that's surviving and that people are hearing and that people identify with the instrument emblematic of a of a certain lifestyle and a certain period of America, whether it's real or perceived to have happened, that makes Lievit Brothers make it central to their music, Taylor Swift to play a guitar banjo, Rhiannon Giddens to get uh, the attention she's gotten. I, I think all of this is the, the evoking the image of the instrument as much as what this instrument traditionally sounded like. Being that it's uh, roots from Africa, why don't you think the African-American community has, has embraced it? I think because, again, as we mentioned earlier, uh, because of racism and the, 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 the connection of the, of the instrument to a very difficult period in America's history and just the feeling that the banjo was used against them. And I think that's a hard thing to overcome. And I also think, as, as with anything what have you listened to growing up and what were you surrounded with? And a lot of people feel like it's a step backwards, I, I think. Congratulations. Bob Carlin is on the line. His new book is called Banjo, an Illustrated History. Thank you so much for taking time to talking to us. You're welcome. Thank you.